This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gautier and is part five of our Lent 2017 series. Today we read the, the fifth gospel of Lent is the resurrection of Lazarus, or the, rather, I'm sorry, the raising of Lazarus. And maybe the best way to start, I think, is a comparison uh, with something else might help us get into what the key issue of this passage really is. So all of us know that for the past few decades in this country, there's been a very lively debate, or what might seem at first a philosophical issue, as to when does human life begin? One position is that human life begins when we're born. Another position is that human life, that a birth, birth is simply the continuation of human life that begins at conception. So that's been our public debate in this country for years, and we know, again, it's more than a philosophical issue because it has really important practical implications, doesn't it? How we believe, what we believe about the start of life will actually affect our decisions. It's a key sanctity of life issue. So in the same way today, we actually have a parallel issue that Jesus brings with resurrection life. As Christians, our great hope is the resurrection life, right? That's the eternal life with God, seeing God face to face. The theologians call it the beatific vision. What that means is beatific is simply a Latin word to mean the thing that makes you happy. You know, basically the, the one thing, seeing God, being known as we are, knowing as we are known. This is our hope. And so the question is when, for us, is when does that life begin? When does resurrection life begin? We might take the position that, well, it will begin at the resurrection of the dead. But another position would say, well, maybe much, much earlier. Maybe it's a position of those who say birth is simply a continuation of life that already began the conception. So again, this, what's the practical implication for us? Why would we care? It makes all the difference whether we think resurrection and life are just a future promise, something off in the distance, or whether resurrection and eternal life are a present reality, something we can actually draw on today. So that makes all the difference in the world. Happily, Jesus answers the question. He answers it in today's gospel. So our focus this morning will be, how does Jesus answer the question? And how does that affect our lives as Christians, how we lead our lives as Christians? Well, let's start by taking a closer look at the, today's gospel, the dialogue with Martha. And I should tell you, it's a very long gospel that we could read. It could be all the way starting with verse 1 through verse 40. And so we basically have the option of leading off the first 16 verses, which we did. But let me tell you so you don't miss anything in those 16 verses and a little bit of background. Lazarus, who dies, and his sisters, Mary and Martha, are close, personal friends of Jesus. That's why I say how much he loved them. They had a home near Jerusalem, and these are the people he would stay with when he was in Jerusalem. These are the people who go to their place. He, this is a place where you just hang out, where you could just basically be at rest. These were close, personal friends. Well, what happened is Lazarus got ill. He fell gravely ill. So they send to Jesus, who's elsewhere. He's, they send to Jesus for help. Jesus doesn't come right away, but when he gets there, for them, what happens is Lazarus, by that time, had already... Um, had died, had been died, had died rather than been buried. Actually, been buried for, uh, for four days. So that's part of where we start today in today's gospel. So, from all appearances, look. First of all, if you were Martha, from all appearances, there's little reason to hope in the immediate future right now for something. Why? As far as the appearances. Well, you say, well, gee, Jesus has healed the, de- uh, raised the, has raised the dead. Of course, he has. But look at the difference in circumstances, which the gospel emphasizes. 
Think of the daughter of Jairus. Remember a famous, uh, a famous raising of someone who was dead, this young girl. Well, in that case, she had just died. She was freshly dead, so to speak, and so we're not nearly as surprised somehow. And we say, well, what about that uh, young man who was being taken out of town to be buried at name? Remember, he was the son of the widow, the only son. Well, he's going to be buried, but in Jewish custom, the Jewish law requires, if at all possible, the burial occur within 24 hours, is traditional Jewish law. So he still would have been recently departed. But that's not the story we have here with, um, with Lazarus. He had actually been dead and buried for four days. And the gospel emphasized four days for a reason we might miss. In Jewish tradition, the fourth day was the day officially that was deemed that the body began to decompose. That was actually the day. As of the fourth day, the body was decomposing. And that's why we so emphasize in the Gospels, remember there's a promise in the book of Psalms about the Messiah, that he would not see decomposition, they call it corruption in the Bible, he wouldn't actually experience decomposition. That's why they emphasize that Jesus is only buried for three days. And that's why we emphasize here that Lazarus is buried for four days. His body has actually started to decompose. In fact, it's sort of interesting, in Orthodox icons in the Eastern Church, any Orthodox icon of the raising of Lazarus what they have in there is always a man in the background holding his nose so to remind us of that point, that this is really not just, quote, any raising of the dead. This is, wow, this is incredible. So what happens here is when Martha sees this, there's no obvious reason why she should think now that something could happen. But Martha is one of my great heroes in the New Testament. I truly admire that woman of God. She's bigger than that. She doesn't believe that any problem is too big for Jesus. I love what she says, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's incredible. Four days, even now, I know it's not too late. Now, Jesus says, you know, your brother will rise, so she immediately points out, well, there's the resurrection of the last day. She says, I know he will, I'm the resurrection of the last day. But that doesn't offer any immediate help, right? That's our comfort, but he's still dead right now. And Jesus says, no, no, no. He, then he offers us this incredible hope. He says, no, Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection and eternal life are not a thing. It's not an event out there. It's a person, the person of Jesus Christ. To be connected to Jesus is to be connected right now. To it's incredible, to resurrection life. When we're with Jesus, it's not out there. It's right here. The resurrection is, is not an it. It's a he. It's the person of Jesus Christ is where we find. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is life. He is resurrection. So we're never farther from life than we are from Jesus. And that's why Jesus says resurrection life. True, we will have the resurrection, the fullness of our resurrection bodies at the last day, but we already begin to enjoy that eternal resurrection life right now. So Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, even though we have physical death. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die means that life is never going to end. Now, I love how Martha responds as a woman of faith. Jesus said, he said, look, I'm the resurrection and the life. He says, okay. He says, whoever believes in me, etc." And he says, do you believe this? Look at her glorious reply in the gospel. What does she say? She doesn't refer to the promise. She goes right to the source. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. You see the point? Her faith is in Jesus. With Jesus, this is possible. She's not focusing on the promise, which is true. She's focusing, why do I? But yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ. This is what gives us the resurrection and the life. That's a powerful point. Now, 
The comparison, again, so basically, when we're connected to Jesus, we are already, right now, connected with resurrection and eternal life. Now, there might be a comparison that could be useful in understanding the story. You know, Jesus also says elsewhere in John, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Well, the way in the sense of like the road, the path, the way in the sense of a road or a path. Well, a road or a path goes somewhere, doesn't it? So roads and paths go to a destination. Well, Jesus, because he's the divine son of God, is God, he's also the destination. So the church fathers love to say, when you take Jesus as your path, you're already, in a very real sense, at the destination. And they had a lovely story in John's Gospel that they thought was a beautiful illustration. I love this story. The apostles take off early to go across the lake, right, the, the, sea, of, the sea of Galilee. And Jesus is behind, so Jesus walks across the, the, the sea to catch up with them. But notice what happens when they take him into the boat. It's really, uh, it says immediately, it says immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Think about that. They're in the middle of the lake. Jesus walks up to them. When they take them in the boat, suddenly they're immediately they were going. They thought, the fathers thought it was a powerful image of the truth that when we take Jesus as the way, in a very real sense, we're already at our destination. It's a powerful image. Again, the connection with Jesus is what brings us to our destination. The connection of Jesus is, 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 is resurrection and life. It's not a thing out there. It's the present. It's in Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The resurrection and the life. Now, what practical lesson can we draw from all of this? Well, I think our tendency in our life is we tend to focus on our problems. It's understandable. We focus on those problems. And sometimes we look at Jesus as someone, sort of like I was in business, like a consultant. Someone you can bring in to help with difficult problems. The focus is the problem. It's exactly opposite. If we're right with Jesus, things work. You know, that, the focus is on Jesus, not the problem. When we're focused on Jesus, things will work out in God's providence. But the focus is on him. And there's a story I love, one of my favorite episodes in the New Testament that I think illustrates this. I love this. I have the icon uh, by my desk in my study because when I, I'm discouraged, I look up at this. It reminds me of this truth. It's another time where Jesus is walking on the water. And don't you love Peter? He says all the things I love to say. Jesus is walking on the water. So instead of just admiring, what does Peter say? I love this guy. He says, Lord, call me to walk on the water too. Call me to, to walk to you. And Jesus said, sure. He said, come out. And what happens? Remember the story. Peter actually walks on the water. Just like Jesus. He's actually using a power only God has. Thanks to Jesus, he's actually walking on the water. But what goes wrong? He's looking at Jesus. He takes his eyes off Jesus. The, the scriptures say he looked at, he saw the wind. It basically, instead of focusing on Jesus, he started focusing on the phenomenon itself. He started focusing on the run. So instead of looking at Jesus, like in spiritualized, we can do it, right? Instead of focusing on God, we start focusing on how this makes me feel. We, so we take our eyes off God. So he stops looking at Jesus, and what happens? He sinks like a rock. You know, Christ has to put out his hand and pull him up. So I love that message. Again, resist the don't focus on the problem. Focus on the solution, Jesus. So we focus our eyes on Jesus. We have this incredible power, the power that walks even on water by focusing on him. So the one sure course is always focus on the person of, 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 of Jesus in the context of today's gospel, specifically in the question of resurrection and life. If we're with Jesus, if we're attached to Jesus, resurrection and life, if you're with Jesus, you're with resurrection and life. It's like one of those events where you think you're late, let's say for a concert or something, and the person who's performing comes in with you. You know you're not, you're not late if they're there. You know, if you're with Jesus, you're with resurrection and life. Now, how is this good news for us today? Well, there's something you might be unaware of historically that's really neat about this land. 
is his, for centuries the church used five specific gospels for the first five Sundays of Lent to prepare people getting ready to baptize. They thought they were lessons they really needed to learn. Now we have a three-year cycle, so we only use these gospels once every three years. But this is our lucky year. It's a very, think about it, the church is trying to tell people, in a church with persecution and things, you need to know about this. You need to be ready. So what are the, what are the five things we had to be ready for? The first thing, remember the first gospel, was temptation. Remember, after Jesus has this wonderful experience, like a mountaintop experience, it is baptism, right? Jesus is baptized, and the Holy Spirit comes, and God says, this is my, how does it get better than that? This is my beloved son. These people are about to be baptized. So what does the church warn him with the temptation? What's the first thing that happens with Jesus? He's tempted. So they're already warning of the fact of temptation. It's not that something, this is natural. It happens after this. And there's victory over temptation. That's the first message that we have on the first Sunday for people to be baptized. Expect, this isn't the, you know, this, you're going to have temptation. That's going to happen. What's the second message that we had the second Sunday? Uh, Nicodemus. It's the need for radical change. It's, it's, it's like being born all over again. It's not cosmetic changes. Like I think as a homeowner, it's not like putting new tiles on the roof. It's like putting on a new roof. There's nothing, it's, it's radical change. The word radical, if it comes from a lot of word, radix means roots. My dad, when I was a kid, one thing that would frustrate him with me is I'd, if I weeded in the yard, I would pull off the tops of the weeds. He said, son, you gotta pull out the roots. <laughs> You know, no good to pull off the tops, you need to pull out the roots. So the second Sunday was to remind us the change we're talking isn't cosmetic. It's not like a new coat of paint. It's radical change being born again. What was the third lesson that, that people were warned about coming to this? Is the Samaritan woman. That everything we thought about life with God is not what we thought. People lived in terms of religion. Religion were things you sort of did, rules you kept. Jesus said nothing. God wants worshipers in spirit and truth. He said that's what he's looking for. He's not looking for this other thing. He's not looking for rituals. He's looking for actual connection in spirit and truth. What's the fourth lesson we had? The fourth lesson last week, you'll recall, was the, uh, you know, was the man born blind. So what happens when we have this wonderful discovery? Remember the man, he says, he was blind, he can see. Well, a lot of them came, this is wonderful. Look at Christ is in our lives. Our lives has changed. They're, they want to share this, and they, Jesus warns them, the reception won't, won't always be good. What happened to the man born blind? People who knew him were confused. His own parents deny him, and a lot of people just oppose him. So don't expect opposition. Expect people not to understand you. So those are the first four lessons of people about to become Christians. What's the fifth? And the idea where they were going in higher levels of difficulty. The most difficult lesson is today, the question of death. All of us have or will have to face or do face the, uh, the reality of death. You know, I love in the, in the, in the English-speaking world, thanks to the, book, the 1662 book of Common Prayer, but we use it in other, in other denominations. Uh, Presbyterians have traditionally used it as well. When you have a funeral, I love these words. In the midst of life, we are in death. That really describes, you know, it's like light in the darkness. In the midst of life, we are in death. The words of the, the, the funeral, in the midst of life, we are in death. So all of us are like Martha, all of us, confront the reality of death in our lives. What death? The death of those we love, which can really be faith-shaking, right? Can really be tough. Or the reality of our own death. Those are hard. For example, I don't know about you, but I remember, uh, I remember all the deaths of the people I've loved in my life, but I particularly remember forever the first real death I had that was something really, really close. I was especially close to my maternal grandmother. I've said in another sermon that for some un, un, inexplicable reason, I was her favorite grandchild. And I'd actually go and spend a few weeks every summer back, uh, uh, you know, at her place, and I loved it. It was one of my favorite places. I still can, rem I can remember every detail. 
when the call came. Well, I remember back in those days, you didn't get, get long-distance calls. were very expensive, so you only got them on Christmas and with bad news. Calls were meant bad news. And I remember my mom looking out, and she says, it's from home, and then saying, my mom died. I still remember that. So we all know that kind of shock, you know, how you feel there, saying, wow, that the reality of death, or the reality of our own death facing that, and boy, it becomes more and more real as we get older. So Jesus, so with it, if that's our big challenge, where's our hope? What's this gospel? What's this hope? Is Jesus gives us a firm reason to hope in the face of death. Why? Because the resurrection, we don't have to hope that centuries later, in the case of those Christians, there will be a final resurrection. Resurrection life, the life that can't die, has already begun. It's begun even now. What does Jesus say? Again, that means that if we die, Life will not be interrupted. It's not like we have to wait for the resurrection dead. We will be with the Lord immediately. Remember, Paul talks about a dilemma. In Corinthians, he said, we'd rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. It means he doesn't have to wait for the resurrection. He would still be immediately with the Lord. Another one, he says in Philippians, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. If he was talking about the resurrection of the dead, dying now wouldn't make it any faster. So it's clearly saying that life doesn't end. We know that, you know, with the Lord, we'll be at home with the Lord. I love that phrase, to be at home with the Lord. So death itself has been transformed. Death was like one of those, uh, when you go in a, a cul-de-sac, it's like one of those things where they say, um, no outlet. They've turned a no outlet into a through street. It's like turning an off-ramp into an on-ramp. It's radically changed the whole, uh, the whole function of death. So what does that mean for us in our daily life as Christians? Well, let me tell you something about technology is I think something that frust uh, frustrates younger people, being an older person, is I've just retired from a place I've been almost 30 years, very close, 29 and a half years. And I was one of the senior people, so one of the things about being senior that's so unfair is you get all the best technology. They give all the really good stuff, and then you get sort of hand-me-downs go down. And what a waste of technology. Right? Because younger people would actually do something. I'd have all this technology I couldn't use, but it was all the latest stuff. And the t IT people loved it, but I'm saying, what a waste. Okay, so in any event, I'm forever in this situation. I have a smartphone, and I'm forever in a situation. I'll be in my car, and somebody will say, Gee, I don't know how to get there. And my son will say, Dad, we have a GPS on your, iPhone, uh, on your, uh, on your smartphone. Or, gee, we're looking up a fax saying, you know, Google it. You have, you know, you have a smartphone. Uh, coming like this is I had something recently. Somebody needed a document, you know, a legal document, and say, how are we going to get them to? And one thing they said, well, why don't you just photo, take a photo of it and, and send it on your iPhone? Those thoughts would never come to my mind. I need other people, I need other people to tell me about them. So I, I have this riches, all this incredible technology, but I never use it. What an incredible thing. Well, I think that sort of is what happens to us sometimes in our spiritual lives. You see, at our baptism, we receive, we already began resurrection life. And what is life? Remember, it, life, is, the great sign of life is spirit. Remember, he breathed into the man. He became a living being. The Holy Spirit is the, we say, the Lord and giver of life, the very life of God. We receive that life, which never is the Holy Spirit in our baptism. This incredible strength, and we forget that's there. So let's look at, uh, why don't we have reason not to lose heart? First of all, is... Uh, even now, not some future, even now, we possess the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the grave and will raise us as well. Look at the, the quote from Paul in Romans 8. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and we know that's true in our baptism, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now notice this, this is really neat. Look at the quote, it says, he will give life, so it's talking about the resurrection of the dead, that's true, that's in the future 
through his spirit who dwells, present tense. Yes, the resurrection then, but the resurrection is already here. It's already present. The spirit who's already dwelling in you is the one who will make that happen. So it's not just something in the future. It's already started. Even now, the same Holy Spirit within us provides an inexhaustible spring of life. I love what Jesus says in John 7. He says, whoever, notice whoever, not just a few lucky people. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers, rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Like later on John, he says, I, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. You know, in our back, we have an inexhaustible source of life and power within us in his Holy Spirit. We forget that fact. Rivers of water. We live in a culture of scarcity. You know, we act like we live in a desert where we're living in the Great Lakes. You know, we were missing we a culture of scarcity, but it's all there. Even now, we've begun to share God's own life. That's not just in the future. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. It says, even now, the Holy Spirit, one of my favorite, my favorite verse in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is transforming us, right? into that fullness of the image of God. It says, and all of us with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image. Notice the present are being transformed into that same image, image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. That same spirit is, God, resurrection life is, is all at work in us right now. And finally, even now, we can have a firm hope in our own resurrection. Why? It's not a distant hope. We already know it's there. We have the, the spirit who raised it is already there. It's our guarantee. We don't have to hope it will, sh will be there. It's already there. We can see it for ourselves. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and if it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He's given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We already have the very spirit in our hearts that will raise us. We don't have to hope that it will happen. We know it will happen because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in conclusion, the letter of the Hebrew teaches us that the, what really enslaved people before Jesus was, was, the, was the fear of death, which only the hope of resurrection can set us free from that. Let me read the verse that we have in, in Hebrews. It says, through, uh, it, it says that Jesus, through death, he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That means we're never really free until we know that, that freedom of knowing that our life has begun and will continue. Okay, not to know fear is to know true freedom. I think of Galatians, for freedom Christ has set us free. Now, this freedom is incredibly powerful because nothing inspires others to believe as seeing this in action. You remember like Paul, so first of all, for example, with the martyrs, the early martyrs, Tertullian, one of our early church fathers, famously said, he said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, one of the ways that was true is we have to understand, sadly, the ancient world, remember, this was a place where they actually put people to death in stadiums and things for entertainment. It was a pretty brutal place. Seeing people die was pretty common. Public executions were regular events. Happily, we don't live in a, where that happens, but this was a regular event, so seeing people die wasn't particularly impressive, per se. What impressed people about Christians it was their attitude in the face of this. They were often joyful. They were expecting, they knew they were going, as Paul says, to be with the Lord. People were amazed by this. They would sing, they would be joyful. That hope was something that was incredibly powerful with the message of Jesus. Wow, this really is life. It's not pie in the sky, it's a real life. We're seeing them and enjoying that freedom and that life even now. And also we see it, 
you know, uh, uh, talking about in the face of death, let me talk about Edith Stein, if you don't know her, was a, uh, actually a very serious philosopher, well thought of philosopher, uh, a, a German philosopher, uh, philosopher in the 20th century, uh, sadly she, she died during the Holocaust. But what happened was she was actually a convert to the faith. But before that, she, was, she had actually lost faith altogether. She had gone through a period of atheism. And what changed her? What broke that atheism, that the spirit of atheism, of denial? She'd come and broke in a wonderful, beautiful, traditional home. had great faith, but she'd lost that. Somehow she'd fallen to atheism. What changed that? It's something really amazing. She had a good friend, someone she de deeply respected, was a, a man um, called Adolf Reinach. He's also a very serious philosopher. And the First World War, and I think you should know from your history, it's hard to imagine a more incredible carnage and waste of human life. Huge, vast numbers of people basically died for nothing, as everyone thought. Why? So he actually died in the First World War in Belgium in a, in a battle where no one got anything. Just, you know, just died for nothing. She went to see the widow, who was a devout Christian. It was that visit to the widow, who just loved the husband, who lost the husband she loved for no reason, it seemed. It was her reaction that converted either side. Let me read her words, which to me are amazing. He said, this was my first encounter with the cross and the divine power it imparts to those who bear it. It was the moment when my unbelief collapsed and Christ began to shine his light on me. Isn't that incredible? My unbelief collapsed in Christ. Why? Because she saw someone, like Paul says, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. She saw that, and that changed everything. Her, her view is, I want this. I've seen this. I want this. Nothing is more powerful, you know, witness to Jesus. The martyrs are, the word martyr in Greek means witness, a witness to Jesus Christ. So again, we have no need to feel defeated or overwhelmed. We already have that resurrection life in us, in our baptism. We already have the spirit, which is that life. The life of God is already in us. It's, so again, like that argument, it doesn't start, then it's already begun. Right, you know, it will cont continue to the resurrection, but it has already begun and we can draw upon it. So let us pray again to remember that we already, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. To have Jesus, we have those things. And to, to remember that the answer then is to focus our eyes on the one who is those things rather than those things themselves. Look at the one who truly is resurrection and life. The resurrection and life and truth and the way are a person, not a thing. They're a person that we can participate. We can participate in that life and we have them all. Let us pray for God's grace for that to be true in our life, to keeping our eyes on Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.